Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Uh, This is coming from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt around his loins, and faithfulness the belt around his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion, uh, and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them, Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Lord, we thank you for the hope that is dripping in this passage. As strange as some of the metaphors are, and as ancient as this text is, we pray by the work of your Spirit that you would cause hope to dwell up in us as we unpack this together. Thank you for the hope that we have in you. Help us to trust it and to believe it with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Amen. You may be seated. Consider this scenario. The year is 7 BC. I don't know what you think of it. I'd be interested to sometime to just sit down. And, what do you think of when you think of 7 BC? Just 7 BC, a long time ago. You live outside the city of Jerusalem on a farm. Your farm has been in the family off and on for centuries. But ever since you and your eldest living relatives can remember, your farm and Israel as a whole has been under the thumb of one oppressive regime after another. Assyrians, Babylonians, Greeks, Romans, even a puppet government from Syria. You're taxed just for being alive in your own land and without representation. You're taxed every time you cross an arbitrary border of city or territory to sell your livestock or your produce or your fish. And as if to add salt to those wounds, the people actually collecting many of these taxes are your fellow countrymen, some of them charging you higher rates just to line their own pockets. Many of the religious leaders who are supposed to be leading us in faithfulness have accommodated themselves to the government to the point where they no longer speak out against the corruption. They fear they might lose what's left of their voice in the nation, that they may be forced to remove any shred of faith in the public square. Why are you in this position? 
Why has Israel been overthrown? Has God forgotten about his people? The nation that was once a mighty oak of righteousness, the people who were supposed to be a light unto the nations, have now become a smoldering stump cut all the way to the ground. Is there any hope? Hope is such a powerful thing. Hope can kindle an entire social or political movement. Hope can keep a prisoner alive whose body and emotions are beaten. Hope is what drives life, and with lack of hope, we'll die quickly. And this Sunday is the Sunday of hope. Jesus is the hope of Advent. And if Advent means coming, and Jesus is the one we celebrate coming, and the one we hope in coming again. Did the people in 7 BC, Palestine, know that Jesus was the one they were waiting for? No. But they knew they were waiting for a savior. They just didn't know his name yet. And why would they be hoping for a savior? What reason would they have to think, to to bank on, that a savior would come in the first place? Well, because the people of God, when we are at our best, put our hope in God and his promises. And the passage I just read from Isaiah chapter 11 was one of those passages that filled people with hope. Hope that caused their eyes to look up toward the horizon. Hope that caused them to pray for and long for a savior like is described in that chapter. Let's consider that text briefly as we think about hope during the Advent season. The nation of Israel, in context of that passage, had fallen so far into sin and idolatry that God had removed his protection from her. Foreign invader after foreign invader had come and dragged the people off into exile. And the once mighty nation was reduced to a stump and it felt like there was no hope. But then, Isaiah, through the revelation of God, gives this message Hope that one day a shoot would spring forth from that seemingly dead stump like a nurse log in the Mount Baker Baker National Forest where you've got maybe a, a cedar sapling or a western hemlock or state tree growing out of one of these massive fallen giants. That's what it's like. And, and that the shoot would come up out of the stump of Jesse and produce a rescuer. Notice the detail that the Savior wouldn't come out of the stump of David Davidic kings, most of whom had shown themselves to be corrupt, but the Savior would come from the line of Jesse, David's father. Technically, the Savior would still be in David's line, but as if it's like a poetic turn of phrase to show that the Savior would actually be more pure than what came out of David's line. It's going back to the source, back to Jesse, his father. And this, the Savior would be endowed with the Spirit of God himself, He would have what a godly leader needs, but what Israel was sorely lacking, wisdom and understanding, counsel and strength, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His judgments and decisions would be equitable and untainted by power or wealth or the influence of the influential. And that means justice and fairness for all. And this savior from the root of Jesse would usher in a new kingdom, an unimaginable kingdom where wolf dwells with lamb and leopards rest with the the kid of goats. Even the nursing child will play safely by the cobra. 
Isaiah is describing something insane, unnatural. This is not so much about a new kind of animal behavior as it is about a new kind of world. Something that no human savior, no political leader can do in his or her own power. Isaiah is describing a time when the evil powers and empires of the day, which in the ancient world were often personified by animals, when these powers would be tamed and work for the common good. He's describing a kind of leadership that results in a world of justice and right relatedness between people and creation. This Advent season, we anticipate the celebration of the birth of Jesus. He came into our world as a vulnerable child. Eyewitness accounts tell us that the Spirit of God rested on Jesus and that his ministry was one of righteousness and justice and healing. It was as if wherever Jesus went, whatever lives he touched, there was new life and new creation. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He cast out demons. He made outsiders part of the insider community. And somehow, with Jesus' life and presence, this prophecy was, the be- was beginning to manifest itself in a person, Jesus the Christ, in the first century A.D. Christmas is about celebrating that fact. But it's about so much more than that. And I'm thankful that it is. Because it is obvious that Jesus has started something that he's not yet finished. That while death has been defeated and our sins can be forgiven, while there's hope for new creation, that the new world has not yet come in full. Like, I know you know that. It hasn't come in full. If anything, the world is very full of pain and suffering and injustice. In 1996... I was in the Coast Guard stationed on a ship out of Seattle, a 180-foot buoy tender, one of those black boats, a working boat. And we had cruised down to San Diego for some training, and I, we were there about six weeks, about a, a little over a month. And I had just started dating Corey the year before, and just as we are now, we were madly in love then, and so a month, six weeks, felt like a very long time to be away, all right? Finally, after six weeks of heavy training in the hot California sun, we were ready to get underway. And our ship takes off, and the captain gets on the intercom, and he has good news. He says, make for home with liberty turns. Liberty is your time off, and liberty turns means go as fast as those engines can go. Uh, We're going home. Ah, yes, we're not wasting any time. We're headed north. Everything was going well. Dolphins are jumping out in front of the wake of the bow. Uh, The the first night, the sunset was gorgeous. San Diego was at our six, which is behind us, and we're headed north. And then the next day, about 10 in the morning, an alarm goes off. And one of my shipmates had a seizure. He had hit his head uh, working on the deck. And so he was airlifted to San Francisco. And our ship pulls into San Francisco to check on, on this brother of ours. And we were there deferred a few days. It turns out he had to be airlifted. Uh, he, just got, he just flew home. And so we, we were delayed a few more days on our way home. But you understand that that's just what happens and you have to do that. So we get underway again. And about three in the morning when I go to put my boots on, I recognize it's a little more difficult to put my boots on than normal, like, I'm almost sideways, and so I get up to the, uh, to the Pyatt house, and it's getting pretty stormy, and by noon the next day, we were in 45-foot seas 
with up to 80 mile an hour winds and it was all coming out of the west, which means that basically our ship had to zigzag for three days, going almost nowhere. Uh, that's a long time to be off the coast of Northern California and Oregon. Uh, there are more things I could tell you about that trip that delayed us even further. One of them was when uh, we were in San Francisco and the captain saw an old friend from the academy and they decided they wanted to play golf in Astoria. So uh, they, yeah, we pulled him there. Uh, yeah, so. <coughs> Corruption of power, come on, gotta get home. I knew and I had hope that we were going from San Diego to Seattle. Like the last time a Coast Guard ship of that size sank. So, like, it usually happens from a collision, right? So I, I had good hope that we were going home. The captain, the one with authority, said we were going home. But in between leaving and getting there, there was a lot of stuff that went down. A lot of hard things that went down. And a lot of great things that went down. I think I won a lot of games of spades on that cruise. <laughs> it's the problem that we face today, though, isn't it? How do we have hope now in this in-between time of Jesus' first coming and his second coming? And this is where I want to put Isaiah 11 in conversation with Romans chapter 8. The book of Romans is written to the early church after the first advent of Jesus, after his death and resurrection, after the coming of the Holy Spirit. And after all these amazing things, people's lives were changed and, and whole church families and communities were being bearers of hope into the world. And yet, there was still so much pain and suffering, so much corruption in the government, and Rome still ruled most of the known world. What could the Apostle Paul write to a church like that to give them hope they could live in? Well, let me read some of it to you. Romans 8. 18 through 24, 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together, even until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope at all. For who hopes in what they already see? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. <laughs> I love this passage, not because it's easy to understand, not because it's easy to live out. I love it because it has the ring of truth. Paul is such a good pastor he doesn't pretend that the world is pretty much fine. All we have to do is just be a little nicer to each other and it'll work itself out. He doesn't sweep people's concerns under the carpet. But just as dire as he admits the world is, he also wants to counter that by giving genuine, solid hope. To stay with my illustration earlier, Paul knows that the world is on a ship from San Diego to Seattle. 
The hope and promise is to arrive safely in port where all things will be made new. We all see our honeys, right? And, and all things will be set right. But in the middle of the voyage, there are still problems, suffering. So real is the suffering that Paul speaks of the whole creation groaning. There are no words to describe it, so there's groaning. And that we groan with the creation. See, somehow, in Adam and Eve's fall, in the Garden of Eden, so long ago, somehow, that had a direct effect, not only on the human condition, but on the created order. There is death and disease and all sorts of corruption in the creation. And the whole creation longs for our salvation. Don't miss that fact. It's like, they're like, you guys screwed this up. I'm waiting for you to get it right. Why? Because we're image bearers of the living God. You hear me say this every week, and you should. Because it all starts in Genesis with our vocation that God creates his image bearers to be incredible representatives of him back into the creation that we're supposed to care and cultivate and create, not exploit and destroy each other and the creation. Creation longs for humans to rightly take up our place as God's representatives on earth, loving and caring for the world. And it's not just plants, animals, forests, and mountains that need rescue. It's the human heart. The systems that our hearts cause. It's not the individual acting with greed. It's also political systems we create because we're greedy people. It's not individuals in two-thirds world countries capturing and selling children into the modern slave market. It is also that the wealthy nations have created a market for such a thing to exist. Who's buying the prostitutes? Who's clicking on pornography? It's, it's the people with means creating the market in the first place. It's not just that some people don't recycle. It's that we're all caught up in a culture of consumption that drives an economic engine that fuels our own prosperity. I'm guilty. It's not that some people are racist and we just need to be a little more PC. It's that our whole system is broken from the criminal justice system to voting districts to income inequality. I could go on and on, right? But you kind of don't need me to. I don't think, right? Uh, you may not get all the ways the world is broken. I think it'd be overwhelming for any one of us to, to know all of the ways that the world is broken. But you know that it is. And if we are honest, we each have a part in that brokenness that is inexcusable. So, <laughs> if things are that screwed up, thanks a lot, Chris. I thought that was about hope. What hope do we have? Well, let me just, a little word about hope. Unfortunately, the way we tend to use hope in the English language is not the way that Paul used the word hope or any of the biblical writers. Typically, when you and I use the word hope, we could almost always replace that word with wish, and it could mean the same thing. I hope the Sounders win the MLS Cup on Saturday. I wish the Sounders would win the MLS Cup on Saturday. Same thing. I hope it snows on Christmas morning. I wish it would snow on Christmas morning. Same thing. And it's not just that we use the word improperly. The English dictionary actually defines hope as, noun, a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. I had high hopes of making the Olympic team is the example they use, okay? I wish I would make the Olympic team, same thing. 
as a verb. I want the want of something to happen or to be the case. He's hoping for an offer of compensation. And this one was funny to me. I hope the kids are okay. Like, that's in the dictionary. That's so funny. <laughs> like, is the person writing that, like, stream of consciousness? Like, I wonder who's watching the kids right now. Anyway. <laughs> if that's what hope means then Paul's encouragement to us in Romans 8 is very weak, for in hope we've been saved, right? If you could replace hope with wish, then for wishful thinking we've been saved. That's bad. I'm not banking my life on wishful thinking. Actually, that's probably another sermon, because I, I, I think in reality I do, and I think you might as well in many areas of our lives. See, Paul's talking about something much more co concrete Paul uses this Greek word, elpis, elpis, which is far from wishful thinking. Here's what it means. The foundation of expectation. The looking forward to something with confident reason for the expectation of fulfillment. I like that. The looking forward to something with confident reason for expectation of fulfillment. That's not wishful thinking. The foundation of of expectation. I like it even more that Paul is sharing his L piece, his hope with us. His hope is not wishful thinking. It's not in governments and human achievement. It drives me crazy sometimes. I, I know people mean well, but when somebody does something good or the news has a nice story and somebody says, oh, my faith in humanity is restored. <laughs> just, just read the next page of the news. Don't put your faith in, in, in humanity. It's, uh, it's not that great. Paul doesn't tell us to do that. Instead, he says, put your hope in the faithfulness of God as revealed in Scripture. Paul's hope is in the resurrection of Jesus. Paul's hope is in the fact that Jesus was resurrected and defeated our great enemy, death, which means we can trust him when he says, you are forgiven and made new. Paul's hope is also in the fact that Jesus was resurrected in a new body, which is a foretaste of the new creation. He is hopeful that when Isaiah prophesied about truth and peace and justice, he's hopeful that what all creation and humanity are groaning for is a completely new world with a new body, with a new heart, with a new mind that works right. That we no longer say with Paul, I do what I don't want to do, and what I want to do, I don't do. Sit with that for a moment. Receive that good news. That's what Paul is saying to hope in. That's what he's saying Jesus has inaugurated in his first advent. That's what he's saying is going to happen at his second advent. That he's going to make all of this new. Now a little bit of warning. Beware. When it comes to Advent and Jesus coming with his kingdom, you and I will be tempted to wish. And we may confuse hope in Christ with the wish that Jesus will make your life easier. Far too often, that's how the gospel is pitched to us. It's about you feeling better, about your life being a little be easier. You might be tempted to wish that Jesus is going to fix your problems. You might be tempted to wish 
that he's going to make your world the way you think it ought to be, your version of what heaven is like. But it seems to me that the advent of Jesus comes preloaded with significance. It comes preloaded with meaning, and it comes preloaded with demands on our life. (laughs) Don't get me wrong, it's very good news. In fact, I'd rather have Jesus' version of the kingdom than the stuff I wish for. But it also is news that we need to adjust to. Advent hope calls us to hope in Jesus and his message and his kingdom. Let me say that a different way. Advent hope causes us to hope in his kingdom and his message, not mine and not yours. Okay? And that means it requires repentance and a reordering of our affections and desires. It it calls us to recognize competing hopes and dying wishes in our life. And best of all, this hope in Jesus and his kingdom is an invitation to truly live, to be agents of hope. Listen, I need to hear the gospel every week, which is why I preach it every week. But it's not just something to make you feel better. I hope it does. It's also something, once you've received the gospel, and if you have, then there's also a a great calling on your life to go live the gospel. We often speak of two advents. The first advent, when Jesus was born, uh, that's when we celebrate Christmas. The second advent, when we look for Jesus to return and recreate all of this mess. But what isn't talked about enough are all of the advents of Jesus that are taking place in between. All the ways he intervenes now to refresh our hope, to hold back the evil in the world and to bring beauty into the world. He does all of this all the time through the beauty of creation that can move us to tears or drop us to our knees. He does this through deep love shared by people, whether it's in the romantic sense or deep friendship or between siblings and parents. He showers us with grace in all kinds of ways, but we would be remiss if we didn't mention one of the main ways Jesus breaks into our world on a regular basis to bring hope. And that is through his church, through disciples of his, through many of you. Tonight, we're going to transform the dining room after we eat into a cold weather shelter for women and children. Teams of people will show hospitality, and dignity and kindness to people who are literally on the streets in a world where they're constantly on guard against people who might take advantage of them. You know, you're not just keeping someone off the street tonight by having them here. I don't know if you can imagine how scary it is to be on the street, especially if you are a, uh, a vulnerable woman. It's not just about being cold. It's about being terrified. And so to be able to offer a safe, hopeful space is literally gospel work. You know, and I felt as like, I'm getting to the end of this message here, and I felt like I could just list off all the great things that you guys are doing, and, and I've, I've got a long list, and I'm proud to be part of this church. I'm proud to know so many of you who I know are doing amazing things in the world. You're bringing hope by the stuff you do. By all means, keep it up. 
Uh, in fact, I want to continue to talk about how we can creatively be bearers of hope through our words and deeds. But let me just probably hit us all where we need to be hit. Let me suggest another way to practice hope in Jesus that may be just as powerful as doing lots of good stuff. So I was thinking that during this season of increased activity and increased workloads and increased consumption and living at an exhausting pace, what if, what if a reflection of our hope was to intentionally slow down a notch? To say no to some very good things, to say yes to something better. In a world that encourages us, ranks us, to, to put our hope in our production, in our social connections. You ever feel like you might go to a social gathering because, not because you really want to, but what you'll miss out on if you didn't go. In a world that encourages to put our hope in our consumption and in our status, what if we were conspicuously less hurried? What would it look like to more frequently say no no thank you to some opportunities so we might be more present and less anxious in the things we actually say yes to. Oh, I know your wheels are turning now. I've got three kids. I know what you're saying. <laughs> None of your kids are still nursing. None of your kids are waking up at night. Hey, I get it. The pressures are there. I'm not talking about some la-la land where the, the wolf's lying down with the lamb and all of a sudden your kids are well-behaved or you've got you know, no school assignments or anything like that. I'm not talking about that. But what I'm talking about is everybody can make 15 minutes. And I feel I'm your pastor and I feel hurried all the time. Like I get paid to pray and I don't even do it all the time. Why? Because you don't see me when I pray. But if I prepare a little bit more on this and impress you, I feel better, right? But I guarantee you in the long run, you'd rather have me be praying on my knees, right? And we can all do that. What I'm saying is during this, this busyness where we speed up, what if we, what if we took 10 minutes? What if, what if that was a new thing for you? Or 20 minutes if you're already doing 10? And reflect a little bit more deeply and allow that peace of Christ to infuse you so that when you are out there in the world that's so anxious and so busy, you offer a different quality of life that's actually countercultural. What hope might that bring to others who, instead of trying to keep up with the most overburdened of their friends, see a rather healthier model and want to follow you? It's Advent. Have hope. Jesus has come, He will come, and He is ever breaking into our world. What a shame if we were to miss Him because we were too busy. Would you pray with me? Lord, we recognize, uh, even as those words are coming out of my mouth, I, I, I bristle at what some of those things mean. Slowing down now? I mean, at the same time, it feels so true and so right. Lord, we want to lay our anxiety before you, our our feelings of being pressed on all sides, of being, of feeling like we need to be more than we can possibly be. And I pray you would give us grace to rest in you, to actually receive you, to actually receive the hope that is ours in you. And I pray, Lord, that through the peace that you fill our hearts with,
through the perspective, the wisdom you give us as we meditate on an Advent devotional or in the scriptures. Lord, that you might be making us helpful, hopeful reflections of your kingdom back into the world. Thank you for this important work that you call us to. And thank you that you don't call us to do these things and be these people in our own flesh. We pray, Holy Spirit, fill us, equip us, and empower us to be your people. Amen.